Welcome to the Alpha Ministries podcast. Alpha Ministries is a recovery church. Our mission is to teach individuals and institutions to recognize and apply the gospel of grace, building stronger families and communities. Join us today as Pastor John Glenn teaches on biblical self-awareness. You will learn what God has done for us that we could not do for ourselves and what it means to be fully adopted into the family of God. We hope you are encouraged and built up in the faith. If you have any questions or comments, be sure to email us and look for some information about us in the show notes. Here's John. Grace is a lifestyle versus law. That's what we're going to consider in our session today. We're going to be looking at a contrast between life in grace and death under the law. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to look at this contrast beginning in verse 5 to illustrate the difference between what it means to live functionally in the grace of God and what it means to essentially die under the law. This is, as I said, a very important contrast because our lives not only individually and personally depends on an understanding of the difference between law and grace, but also our relationships with others depend on this same understanding. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5, we're told that our sufficiency is not of God, or is of God, rather, that it is not of ourselves. In other words, it is not we who make ourselves worthy. It is not we by our own efforts to attain to certain levels of performance, or we by our own efforts to manipulate our environment and our circumstances that make our lives worth the living, but it is rather God. Our sufficiency, therefore, is of God and not we ourselves. And he goes on to say in verse 6, that the same God has made us able ministers of a new covenant of grace rather than the old covenant of law. Tonight what I want to do is give you an example of what I'm talking about in terms of a contrast between law and grace. Especially in verse 6 when he says he has made us able ministers, I want you all to pay particular attention, not just you who are in the studio audience, but particularly you who are watching on the video, I want you to pay particular attention to the fact that you are able ministers of the new covenant. I know in the church today there is a great distinction between the laity, that means laypersons, and the, the clergy or the paid professional ministers. There's a great distinction not only in the minds of the clergy but also in the minds of the laity. But I want you to understand that this distinction is not biblical. This distinction between the clergy and laity is the traditions of men. It is not of God. You see, God has made each one of us servants of the Most High. He has made each one of us as believers in Jesus Christ able ministers of the New Covenant. Now, particularly, we need to understand what that New Covenant involves if we're going to be able ministers of that New Covenant. We need to know what that involves in contrast to the Old Covenant. And so this evening I want to share a contrast with you on the board concerning the difference between grace as a lifestyle and the New Covenant versus law as a lifestyle under the Old Covenant. The first then has to do with 
the new covenant. Now, don't let the word covenant throw you. I know a lot of people have trouble with that word because it kind of sounds religious. It's a biblical term. It's translated in the King James Testament rather than covenant, but really what it means is a contract. And when we refer to the new covenant, we're talking about a new contract God makes with us. And we contrast that with the old covenant, which is a contract God had made before with the nation Israel, with his people. Now that old covenant, you recall, was given through Moses at Mount Sinai when he gave the children of Israel the Ten Commandments. If you all recall the Ten Commandments, you recall how severe they are, especially in the first four commandments, all describing our relationship with God and demanding absolute perfection. The last four of the Ten Commandments describe our relationship with each other and again demands perfection. The law or the old covenant that God made with Israel basically sounded something like this. To put it in our modern English, it's God simply said, you behave yourself with regards to me and you behave yourself with regards to each other and I'll bless you. If you blow it with regards to me or you blow it with regards to each other, I'll curse you. Now, this sounds real familiar to us, doesn't it? All of us are real familiar with this kind of a contract because generally this is how we relate to each other as well. Let's take a romantic situation just as an example. When you meet that special person in your life, you're a little bit shocked to begin with that they paid attention to you at all. And because you're desiring affection and attention, you're somewhat delighted that someone actually likes you. And that's kind of how you get started in this relationship. Now, for us men, sometimes it takes a little longer for that light bulb to click on than for the ladies, but I don't know whether they plan it that way or not. But, you know, sometimes it, it takes a little longer to click into this, but still the same thing is true. We're amazed that somebody cares about us, that somebody noticed us, that somebody paid attention to us. And so what we do is immediately reciprocate and we say, well, I, I kind of met, am interested in you, too. I kind of like you, too. And then we stay in this romantic period. We play these little games back and forth, which really boils down to this. If you love me, then I'll love you. And that all sounds good on the surface, but underneath that is this statement. If you quit loving me, I'll hate you for the rest of my life. Okay? That's a conditional kind of contract that we've entered in non-verbally and certainly not written a contract we've entered in with another person in our relationship that's a really a covenant of law well God entered into a covenant of law with Israel and he said to them in effect if you behave yourself with regards to your relationship to me and to others I'll bless you if you don't behave yourself I'll curse you now it's important for us to understand that Israel never was able to keep that law Never. As a matter of fact, while Moses was up on the mountain receiving the tables of stone in which the law was engraved by God, the whole nation was down at the bottom of the mountain breaking every one of those commandments. And from that point on, the whole Old Testament scripture tells us repeatedly, time and time again, that Israel could never keep the law. 
Now, I want to emphasize this in your mind so that you get the understanding of what the Old Testament scripture is for. We're told in the New Testament that it was written for our admonition. And one of the things that we need to be admonished about is we can never do enough to get God to bless us. We can never engage in the right rituals, in the right behavior, in the right conduct for the right amount of time in order to earn God's blessings. It's impossible. The children of Israel tried it as a nation, and I always thought about that. You know, when I was a kid, I used to think, man, those guys had it made. There they were out in the wilderness. What trouble could they get into? They were out in the wilderness, but I forgot that there was 1.5 million of them out there in the wilderness, so they could get into all kinds of trouble with each other. But you see, they had the best shot possible of keeping God's commandments and earning his blessings, and yet the history in Israel repeated over and over and over again, right from the very outset, was they were never able to do it. They were never able to quite meet up to God's standards. Now, this is underscored through various portions of Israel's history, and I'm not going to take the time in this session to go through all the details of it, but let me just hit a few highlights with you. When Joshua led the second generation into the conquest of the land, he called them to an understanding of this law again, legal mentality, and he put half of them on one mountain and half of them on another mountain, and he read the law in between. And then he said, choose you this day who you will serve, either the Lord and keeping his commandments or these false gods. And all of Israel said, we're going to serve God. I mean everybody in the whole camp, everybody, every household member said, we're going to serve God. We're going to keep the law. And then Joshua point blankly told them, you can't do it. Now, a lot of people, when they read that at the end of Joshua, they get a little shocked by that. But Joshua turned around right then and told the people, you can't do it. And they said, oh, yes, we can. Yes, we can. We promise we'll be good. We promise we'll keep the law. We promise we'll change. We promise we'll quit doing those things we shouldn't do. And we promise we'll start doing other things. Joshua said, you can't do it. You cannot serve God. What he was telling them is you cannot live under a law system. All you can do is die under a law system because the letter kills, as we're studying in 2 Corinthians. Now, what's the point of that, though? If you can't live under the law system, if all you can do is die under the law system, then what good is it to have the law system? We're going to get into that a little later, but for right now we need to consider the fact that the law was given by God not so that we could earn his approval, but the law was given by God to show us that we all need his grace as a lifestyle. That's why the law was given. It was not given to give us the guideline or the blueprint for gaining God's approval. It was given to show us that we are in desperate need of a new way of living that is represented by the new covenant. Now let's go ahead and mention the terms of the new covenant that Jeremiah talks about. In a previous session, we've talked about this new covenant a little, but it bears repeating because it's such a glorious message to know that we are in the new covenant now with God. Jeremiah 31, verse 31, he actually says that God is going to make a new covenant with his people. And this covenant is going to be a covenant of grace, not a covenant of law. And he gives us three basic terms of this new covenant. The first term 
is he says, I will write my law on your heart, in your inward parts. Now let's consider that for a moment. This is a promise that God said. First of all, note that there's no condition here. He didn't say, if you behave yourself, if you clean up your life, if you quit doing these bad things, then I'll write my law on your heart. No, there's no condition at all in the new covenant. It is unconditional, an unconditional promise of God, which he simply tells us what he's going to do for us. And he says, first of all, I'm going to write my law on your hearts. I'm going to cause you to obey my law from the inside. Now, you recall in our earlier study that the heart now is not that organ in the center of our chest pumping blood. The heart is the deepest part of our subconscious mind, our, what psychologists would refer to as our subconscious mind. The heart is the deepest part of our soul. Out of that heart proceeds everything that causes us to, to feel and to act. And God is saying, I'm going to write my law on your heart, meaning I am going to cause you to obey my law from the inside out. Not just give external compliance with my law, but from the inside out, I'm going to cause you to obey my law. The second term of the new covenant, he says, you're not going to have need that your brother run around telling you know the Lord or get to know the Lord or telling you about God. You're going to be able to know God personally because he is going to be your God and you are going to be his people. Now, this is a real important concept for us to understand. One we'll develop a little later in our Alpha series, but this promise is that you and God can have a personal relationship. You and God himself, the creator and sustainer of this universe, can actually have a relationship that is intimate and personal, that no one has to tell you about God. No one has to interpret God for you that you can actually hear God, understand him, know him, and experience him personally. This is a tremendous promise in the New Covenant, a promise of intimate relationship with God. And the third promise of that New Covenant God says he's going to do is he says your sins and your iniquities, all your mistakes, all of your transgressions, all of the things you've done wrong, I will remember no more. I'll put them out of my remembrance. Now, you and I, of course, we're still going to remember those things. I could do a little exercise with you right now, and you would probably call up to your mind things that you're ashamed of in the past, that you still remember, even though you've asked God for forgiveness. They still trouble us because they're still stored in that subconscious mind. But if you were to ask God about it, he would say, I don't remember. Because his promise in the new covenant is your sins and your iniquities I will remember no more. Now, this is a radical contrast between the old covenant of law and the new covenant of grace, but it's only the first of that contrast. Let's look again at our context and get another, yet another point that we need to be aware of, and that is in verse 6 he says, we are able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, which is his word for the law, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The second contrast that I want you to note with me is that under grace, under the new covenant, we have the energy of the Spirit of God. This, by the way, is reference to God himself in the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, the one whom Jesus named the Comforter. 
he has promised to us under the new covenant in grace. However, under the old covenant in law, by way of contrast, we don't have the working of the Holy Spirit. We have instead what he refers to as the letter. Now, the letter is, strictly speaking, a law in itself, but it's more than just the law that God gave. It is our interpretation of that law. This is the letter of the law, the interpretation that we have of what God says. For instance, God said in the law to honor your father and mother. Well, how do we interpret that? What does it mean to actually honor your father and mother? You see, we could go on and on and on in describing different ways that we might honor our father and mother, and all of those ways we're describing would be our interpretation of that command to honor your father and mother. That interpretation is the letter of the law. An illustration that I frequently use that, that surprises a lot of folks, especially folks that have been uh, brought up in the church and are caught up in, in a lot of religion, is the law concerning the tithe. I suspect that most of you here in the studio audience have heard about the tithe, and I bet those of you in the video audience, you've heard about the tithe as well. Because you see, money is an important factor to religious machines. You've got to have money to make them work. And so it's a favorite, a favorite subject for a lot of preachers when it comes time to pay the bills to just preach on the tithe. That's what you need to do is preach on the tithe. But I doubt seriously whether you've ever heard a message that's been preached on the tithe out of Deuteronomy 24 concerning the law of the tithe. I doubt seriously whether you've ever heard a pastor get up and preach on the tithe and use Deuteronomy 24 as a text. And the reason is because of our interpretation of what the tithe usually means. Usually we think our natural religious interpretation of the tithe is that it is 10% of your income now, it can be argued, depending on what letter you use, whether that's your gross income or your net income after taxes, but it's 10% of your income is to be given to the Lord, and it's interpreted, obviously, they say, send your money to Jesus and then give you their address. Okay, you follow what I'm saying? They, they, they say, well, you bring it into the church. You bring it into our organization, our group. That's where you give your money to the Lord. And it's assumed, of course, that their church is, is actually responding to the Lord and is a representative of the Lord. Now, that's our normal interpretation of the tithe. But if you go back in Deuteronomy 24, and I'm not going to take the time in this session to do this. I'll just give you a little homework assignment here. If you'll go back into Deuteronomy 24 and you read the law of the tithe, you'll find out that it reads something like this. God commanded Israel to give a tithe, 10%, of their, their uh, profit every year, but that tithe was to be taken to the place that God would before determine where he wanted them to spend their tithe, and there, when they were at that place, they were to buy anything that their soul lusted after. They were to buy anything that they wanted, that their heart desired, anything. Then he gives a list. He starts, first of all, if you, if you want some sheep, buy some sheep. If you want some cattle, buy some cattle. If you want some oxen, buy some oxen. If you want some wine, buy some wine. 
If you want some strong drink, buy some strong drink. And there, he said, you are to eat your tithe and rejoice before the Lord. Now, that's a strange law concerning the tithe, isn't it? Eat your tithe and rejoice before the Lord. The law of the tithe also included giving 10% of your money every third year to the priests and to the widows and the orphans. You see, the letter is our interpretation of what God says. And that letter, he says, the letter of the law, can be different for different people, but our interpretation can get us into trouble. Our interpretation of the law of, tithe, of the tithe, for instance, out of Deuteronomy 14, our interpretation of that law of the tithe can actually get us into trouble, or we can just ignore that passage altogether and just not interpret it. But what does the letter do? Ultimately, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, the letter kills. Specifically, how does it kill? No matter how you interpret the tithe, whether you interpret it as giving money, 10% of the money into the church, or you interpret it in another way, like Deuteronomy 14 suggests, however you interpret the law of the tithe, your interpretation is what you're trusting to tell you what to do. Now look at this contrast. The interpretation of the letter of the tithe is what you're trusting. That's the letter. To tell you what to do with your tithe. Instead of that, we can trust God himself to tell us what to do with the tithe. You see the difference? We can actually trust our own understanding of what the Bible says, or we can trust the leadership and direction of the Spirit in our lives. If we trust our own understanding, we're going to die. We're going to experience death and dysfunction in our lives. If we trust the leadership and direction of the Spirit, we're going to live. That brings us to yet a third contrast, that the Spirit gives life. He always leads you into what is right for life. Whereas the letter, our own understanding, our own interpretation of what God means by the law, always brings death. Isn't this what he says right there? Read it again. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. Verse 6, rather, who also made us able ministers of the New Testament or the New Covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You see, whenever we live under this legal mentality, we experience death. Now, when I talk about death, you all understand that I'm not just talking about a physical death of one sort or another. You, you might have the idea, or you might get get the idea in your mind that when I say death, I'm talking about some kind of physical death, even though we can't interpret it this way, generally I'm talking more about a personal death, what psychologists would call neurosis or psychosis. Generally I'm talking more about a spiritual death, a separation, a distance between you and God, or I'm talking about a social death, a distance between you and others, or a relational death the kind of trouble we experience in our families, in our home life. You see, the letter or the law system always brings death with it. 
in one form or another. But the Spirit, under a covenant of grace, gives life, and it answers all issues of death. Now, in order to understand this contrast a little further, our author goes on here to describe the Old Covenant when it was given and contrast the giving of the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. He says in verse 7, But if the ministry or ministration of death, written and engraved in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? I know those are kind of confusing King James words here, so let me try to illustrate what he's talking about. He's saying that the ministry of the Spirit here is far more glorious than the ministry of the letter. That is that the Holy Spirit can actually bring life into our life, but the Spirit, or the letter rather, our own interpretation will only bring death. It's more glorious then, not just because it brings life rather than death, but it's also more glorious because of the power that it has. You see, there is a glory in a legal mentality in which we set ourselves up as the judges of the universe. There is a glory, a certain glory in that. If I look at your life and I scrutinize your life and I try to find what's wrong in your life, and I try to determine the faults and list them out and condemn you for that because you're not meeting up to the law. There's a certain glory in that. It makes me look good. This is a trap, by the way, that a lot of professional clergy get into. They think it's their job to set an example by telling other people how rotten they are. They think it's their job to contrast themselves with other people and say, now look, you folks, are all messed up, but myself, I've got it all together. Now, they're not going to say it in those terms, believe me. I'm just being honest here with you as a member of the clergy. They're not going to say it in those terms, and they're not even going to intentionally want to do that. But there's a glory when we preach against sin. There's a glory when we preach against what's wrong. And we walk away from doing something like that and believe that we've actually accomplished something good. I've been caught in this trap, folks. I've been caught in this very trap. When I thought it was my duty to stand up and to preach against sin, I thought it was my duty to tell everybody what's wrong. I guess I was kind of trying to take the place of Rush Limbaugh <laughs> and trying to tell people the way things ought to be and condemn people for not being that way. And there's a certain glory in that. Did you know that? You bet there is. When you can hammer out the truth of what's wrong, especially when you can prove it from the Bible, especially when you can actually take the scriptures and show people what God says is sin, there's a certain glory in that because people sitting there listening to you think, oh my God, I've been doing that. Oh, man, and you get the, all the attention on them and how messed up they are. That kind of makes you look good indirectly. And there's a certain glory in that. But I'll tell you what's more glorious. What's more glorious is when you, in the power of the Spirit, share the truth of the gospel with another person. And the Holy Spirit 
clicks the light bulb on in their mind and their heart is open to receive the truth of the gospel and you see them change from the inside out before your very eyes by the power of God, that's more glorious than condemning people that are wrong. It's always more glorious to see life brought in to those who were dead in sins and trespasses than it is just to condemn dead folks for being dead in sins and trespasses. This contrast between law and grace, this contrast is the difference between life and death. And I want us to continue on here in our contrast just for a moment yet, and then we're going to look at some practical application of this in our lives. He says in verse 10, or verse 9 rather, for if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. If it's glorious to stand up and condemn folks, it's far more glorious to give them righteousness. This is what the law does. It stands up and condemns. It demands absolute perfection and condemns to death those who fail to meet its demands. Grace, on the other hand, gives with outstretched arms the supernatural power to change from the inside out to meet the very demands of the law. Life and death difference now. Verse 11, for that which is done away is, was glorious, much more that which remains is glorious. Another contrast here is that the law was done away with. We'll see this in a later study, that when Jesus died on the cross, he took the handwriting of the ordinances against us, and he nailed it to his cross. The law was done away with, but what remains today is grace, and it will remain throughout all eternity. Now, because of this contrast, we're getting to the application now, in our everyday life. Because of this contrast, Paul goes on to write, verse 12, seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. The first impact that is noted in those who are living under grace as opposed to law is in how they talk to other people. The first impact is in our speech with other people. He says, when you're living under grace, you can use great plainness of speech. You know what this means? Let me give you another word for this. He says that when you're living under grace, you can actually get real with other people. You don't have to put on any games. You don't have to put on any airs. You don't have to put up any facades. You don't have to hide behind any defensive layers or walls. You can get real with people. You can use great plainness of speech. Why? Because when you're living in grace, as we'll see a little bit later, you're living in faith. Faith in what God has done for you, you couldn't do for yourself to make you okay. You're living in hope concerning yourself. You're living in love concerning others, and you're not living in fear. Therefore, you can afford to be honest and real with other people without fear of condemnation. You can actually be yourself when you live in grace. So you can use great plainness of speech. I can generally tell when someone's laboring under a heavy load of a legal mentality by listening to them talk. When I listen to them talk, and they make absolutely no sense whatsoever, I've got a pretty good idea that they're operating in fear. They're operating in fear, and they're trying to pick and choose their words very carefully so as not to offend because they're scared to death. They're not living in the grace of God. They're living under law. Seeing then we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech, and not as Moses, 
which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. I have to tell you about Moses. Moses was a man, a tremendous man of God, but Moses was just like us. Did you know that? He was, he was not any different than you and I. Moses, when he came down off that mountain with the Ten Commandments, his face was shining as bright as the noonday sun. As a matter of fact, when he came into the camp, people would have to hold their hands up to protect their eyes in order just to see what it was. And when they discovered it was Moses, they said, Moses, put a veil over your face. Cut that shining out so we can talk to you. Now, I think this was somewhat of a surprise to Moses. He didn't know he was shining like that when he came down, you see. But when everybody started squinting and running back from him, he, he, he said, something's going on. I, thought he, I think he was probably pretty surprised that night when it got dark and he went into his tent and he didn't have to light a light. I think he was probably pretty surprised then about his face shining. But his face was radiating light. When you go back, it's really an interesting story to go back and read this. When he came off of that mountain after being in the presence of God, he was radiating light. And for the first time in Moses' career, people listened to him. Now, wouldn't you listen to a man whose face was radiating light brilliantly? You bet you would. They listened to him. They didn't question what he had to say. They knew something was up with Moses. And they knew better than to go against old Moses. And so old Moses got some respect, finally. Now, when you read the history of the Exodus, you read how the people were always murmuring against Moses. And I can just imagine how thrilled Moses was to have the respect, finally, of the people he was leading. And so he kept this veil on his face, even when his face quit shining, which it did. After a while, his face quit glowing like it did when he first came down off the mountain. But old Moses, sly old person that he was, he kept that veil on his face. You know why? Because of the respect he had, because people thought his face was still shining. Here, Paul is making a contrast here. He's saying, we use great plainness of speech. We get real. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. You see, the law was glorious when it was given, and so glorious it caused Moses' face to shine. But then the law faded. The glory of the law faded. And actually, Moses' face quit shining, and he began to be a hypocrite by keeping that veil over his face in order to gain the approval, the acceptance, and the respect of the people that he was leading. This very thing happens to us, by the way, every time we get in a legal mentality. Every time we try to live our lives by a set of rules and regulations. How many of you have ever had this experience that you... You, you got into a new group of people, a club or something, or you started a new group, and the first thing you said, we've got to do, we've got to make some rules here. We have got to make some rules on how we're going to deal with this issue, whatever it is. I don't care what it is. You've got to have rules. So you make up a list of rules. And to your horror, you find that you're the first one that wants to break these rules <laughs> because you've, you've found that you have ruled yourself out in some way. And so... All of a sudden, you find yourself saying, my word, 
we made up all these rules and now I'm out of it. I was talking with a pastor friend of mine the other day who began a church from a beach ministry down in the Pompano area. And he, he actually started this church from scratch. And it, it built up to two or three hundred people. And they went through all the gyrations of getting a nonprofit status and of, of having bylaws and so on. And at one of his recent board meetings, his board of directors said, you know, we really need to come up with some rules about how it is that we can get rid of you if you get weird. <laughs> and he was looking at me saying, wait a minute now, I started this church and now they want me to give them rules on how to get rid of me. You see, the rules get us into trouble. And as soon as we start trying to live our life by a set of rules and regulations, we've got to be like Moses. Did you know that? As soon as we have to conform to a set of rules and regulations under the law to live our life by, we've got to start putting on the veil. We've got to start putting on the front. Even if we're not keeping all the rules, we can't let anybody know we're not. Even if we do transgress a rule or two, we can't let anybody know that. We can't be honest. The more rules we have, the less honesty is in our life. Now, when we're living under a legal mentality of the old covenant, that death is brought about in the way that he's talking about here by the fact that we can't afford to be real anymore. We can't afford to be honest. And he elaborates on this by saying in verse 14, but their minds were blinded, for until this day remains the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. What he's talking about here is the effect of the law. Later in another study, I'll be telling you more about the purpose of the law, but specifically what he's talking about right now is that every time the law is read, and here we're talking just about the law of God. Every time the law is read, it convicts us. And we have to start weaseling around finding excuses as to why we're not meeting up to that law. If you don't believe what I'm saying, you try this. Try it at home. Try reading Matthew chapter 5 and 6. This is the Sermon on the Mount, and it's 100% law. He makes such statements in there, such radical statements as if someone sues you for an article of, of clothing, you give them more than what they sued you for. If someone compels you to go, forces you to go one mile with them, you go two miles with them. He tells us such radical things as to love your enemies. And then finally, at the end of verse five, or chapter 5, he says, you be perfect, for your heavenly Father is perfect. I mean, you can't read that law and not be convicted and not start saying, well, I'm not sure he really means all that and start wheezing around. Every time Moses is read, every time the law, whatever form God gives it in, every time it's read, it convicts us because that's its job. Its job is to convince us that we need a Savior to do for us in grace what we can't do for ourselves. That's all he's saying here about the veil that's on our heart. Nevertheless, verse 16, he says, when it shall turn to the Lord, that's our heart, the veil shall be taken away. You see, when you turn to the Lord for your worth as a person, you turn to the Lord to make you secure and significant by what he's done for you that you couldn't do for yourself, you have no need for the self-protective devices of your defense maneuvers. You have no need to cover up anymore. 
you can be honest and you can be real because he's made you worthy. So when you turn to the Lord, he says, the veil shall be taken away. In verse 17, he says, now the Lord is that spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty, there's freedom. You see, where that spirit works under the new covenant of grace, there's life and liberty. There's absolute freedom. But we all, verse 18, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. I want us to close out this contrast between law and grace by showing you the effectiveness of grace. Many people have the idea, and this is a distorted mentality that we get growing up naturally in our culture, and any culture for that matter, just humanly, that the law is really what makes us behave. Isn't that what the very first thing we try? I mean, if you see a problem in your life or in somebody else's life, the first thing we want to do is make up a rule about it, especially if it's in an organization of some sort, isn't it? The first thing we've got to do is make up a rule about it and make it against the law to do this thing, as if that's going to help. I don't know how many laws we have in our state statutes and our criminal uh, books and all of that sort of thing, uh, even federal law. I don't know how many laws we have against crime, but it hasn't stopped crime, has it? See, the law is ineffective in this, in this sense. It cannot change people. This is the biggest contrast I want you to see, that the law never has been able to change people. It has never intended by God to be a means of changing people. But what changes people is this lifestyle of grace that we're talking about, that we're trying to learn about in our series, that we're trying to develop. What changes people is actually seeing and beholding personally the grace of God. Look again at verse 18 with me. He says, but we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass or a mirror, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Let's take this verse apart so we understand exactly what he's talking about here. First of all, note that we all includes all of us, all who are believers in Jesus Christ, all who seek to live in the grace of God with unveiled face, that is, getting real with ourselves, getting real with God about ourselves, with unveiled face, not playing any more games, are going to be doing something here. We're going to be holding steadfastly or actually looking intently as in a mirror, a glass, or a mirror, the glory of the Lord. Now bear with me on this. This gets a little technical, so I want you all to try to follow me on this analogy. I want you to visualize a mirror. The reason we look into a mirror is to see ourselves as we really are. The reason we get up in the morning and we go look in the mirror to comb our hair, brush our teeth, and so on, is to make sure that we're all together. So we, we look in a mirror to see ourselves. And it'd be kind of a strange thing if you looked in the mirror and you saw somebody else, wouldn't it? Hmm? You'd say, that was not a mirror, that's a window, right? No. If you looked in a mirror and saw somebody else, you would think you were in the twilight zone or something. Now we look in a mirror to see ourselves, so keep that image in your mind. We look in a mirror, and this is what he's saying, we all behold in a mirror the glory of the Lord. 
Now, the glory of the Lord is not ourselves. The glory of the Lord is Jesus. He is the outward manifestation of God. He is the living word. So what he's saying here in this analogy is we can look into this mirror and we don't see ourselves, but we see Jesus. And immediately we have a conflict in our mind. Now, wait a minute. When you look into a mirror, you're supposed to see yourself. But here he says, we look into the mirror and see Jesus. Now, this conflict is resolved by the fact that the mirror that he's talking about, James defines for us as the Bible, as the Word of God. This is the mirror. It is meant to reflect Jesus, who he really is, and what he's done for us, we can't do for ourselves. You see, Jesus, as the living Word, was full of grace and truth. He was not full of law and lies. He was full of grace and truth. And if Jesus, the living word, was full of grace and truth, then the written word that reflects the living word is also going to be full of grace and truth. And when we look into this mirror, we see Jesus, but keep the mirror image in mind. No, we look into this mirror to see ourselves. So how are we going to reconcile this conflict? is simply this. We look into the mirror to see ourselves in Jesus. To see who God has made us to be in union with Christ. Being one with Him. Now we've talked about this in several ways, but specifically we need to know that we are one with Christ in essence, that what is true of him is true of us. And when we study the Bible to see that, when we study the scriptures to see what God says he's done to make us one with Christ, we're looking into the mirror. I hope you're all following this analogy because it's so critical, because this is how we change. This is how we grow. This is how we develop. By looking into the mirror to see the beauty of the gospel of what God has done to make us one with Christ. And as we do that, look what he says happens. But we all, with open face, beholding as in the mirror the glory of the Lord, are changed. Now, don't let your little legal mentality run away with you here. Because many people think, oh, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about studying the Bible here, seeing how Jesus acted, and seeing what he was up to, and then trying to go out and be like Jesus. No, I'm not talking about that. I am not talking about you looking to see what Jesus was like and then trying to be like him. I am talking about you looking to see how God has made you one with Jesus how God has crucified the old worthless person you were with Christ, buried that person in Christ, and raised up a brand new person with Christ so that you are now a worthy person, secure in God's love, significant in God's plan, that you are one with Christ so that what's true of Jesus is true about you. When you can see that from the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit makes that come alive and clicks that light bulb in, a very thing, a very strange thing happens. You are changed. Doesn't say you change yourself. Doesn't say you try hard not to be like you were. He says you are changed. That's passive voice in the Greek, which means it's not something you do, it's something that is done to you. 
You are changed. Into what? Look at what he says. Into the same image. You're changed to be like Christ. Into the same image. Now, folks, that's what being functional is all about. Did you know that? That's what being alive is all about. That's what life really is. Because the only truly functional human being that's ever been on this earth was Jesus. And you are changed into the same image to be like him. From glory to glory, this is a developmental process. It's not going to happen to you all in one shot overnight. It's going to be from glory to glory. You're going to go step by step. You're going to progressively change as you grow and mature in knowing who you are in Christ. But notice finally who it is that's going to do the changing. It's not you that's doing the changing. It is even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now let's remember our contrast here again. The law under the old covenant demands that you change, that you behave yourself to get God to bless you. But grace gives you the spirit and the ability actually to be changed by him. This is why the law produces death, but the spirit gives life. Now, the practical application of this in our everyday life is then we must learn what it means to live in grace. We must learn what it means to walk our life out in the grace of God, under the motives of grace, of faith, trusting in what God has done for us we couldn't do for ourselves, in hope, a joyful, confident expectation about our future, that we're going to be okay because of what God has made us to be in Christ. And finally, in love, being able to actually love others like Christ loves them. This is what it means to live a life in grace. How does it begin? It begins by faith. How does it end? It ends by loving one another. Now, it's necessary for us to close out this session with one final comment concerning this law and grace difference. Even though God gave the law to Moses, even though he gave the law at Mount Sinai to Moses, he never intended people to live up to it except by grace. Many people are trying their best. I mean, they're trying as hard as they possibly can to please God, to get him to bless them somehow. But folks, God never intended to be pleased by your works. He only intended to be pleased by your faith, by your trust in him. This is what pleases God. May the Lord give us the grace to trust him that we might please him. Thank you. Thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and visit our website. All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes. 